Well, the dust is settling and the engines on the wagons are cooling down. Many heroes were made in France and once again, Irish fans showed how they are truly one of a kind. This is the Why Big Football Show right here on Benchwarmers. I'm Dave O'Grady. Joining me for a chat is author Alan Gurnan, who's wrote a book called Retired. What happens to footballers when the game's up? Alan, it's good to talk to you. I guess as the excitement of Euro 2016 now begins to ease away, I guess the reality really sinks in for a lot of footballers a lot of football heroes uh, post-tournament I guess could be a time where a few footballers will hang up their boots but as you've kind of discovered in the book the road can get quite bumpy sure yeah uh, thanks uh, Dave for inviting me on it's great great to be on um, yeah the book uh, retired it looks at well, basically the background to it I, I sort of the same age as players that uh were retiring when I had the idea and like probably like most of the general public I probably presume they you know they retire live happily ever after on their millions so sort of looked into it and I wrote an article a couple of years back on how Premier League footballers end up bankrupt which sort of opened my eyes like it was the week David James the former England Liverpool keeper went bank was declared bankrupt and he ended off auction off Opel Astra vans and his football shirts and you know loads of memorabilia and things like that so I just wondered how, you know, when you've had maybe a 10 or 15 year career at the top level, learning what players do now, how they can they can lose it all when they retire. And when I'd written that, I sort of investigated further and it seems there's a lot of pitfalls they, they have to encounter upon retirement um, and a lot of them interlinked, I suppose. I guess it's scary to think, talk about so many footballers end up bankrupt. Number one, I'm thinking, well, how could they have been when they've been earning so much? Number two, I'm kind of thinking, well, is this the footballers that maybe, you know, were in the Premier League or the top division in English football and or high leagues up there before, I guess, the really money came in? Or is it just a case of number three, bad spending during their careers? Uh, it's a mixture of, of all three, and I suppose even more than that. Um, for example, like when I was writing the book, there was maybe a, a former Premier League player every every week going bankrupt, and typically they were because of um, film schemes, uh, which the Sunday Times investigated last November and, and claimed maybe up to 100 fo- ex-Premier League footballers were involved in these schemes where they invested in them um, for, I suppose, tax write-offs. Uh, typically, they were taken out in the early noughties, so it was players that maybe played around then and have retired maybe five or six years ago, and now they're coming, getting sort of haunted, I suppose, with, with retrospective taxation, which they just can't afford, and typically the only avenue for them then is bankruptcy. So there were probably players in, maybe in the last five or six years might have been retired, but... You know, I spoke to a few insolvency practitioners and bankruptcy lawyers that have specialised in footballers' uh, bankruptcies. And in the majority of cases, they've very rarely seen anyone outside the Premier League. I suppose if, if they don't have money to invest in the lower leagues, they, um, they won't lose as much as we've seen, I suppose, with developers in Ireland and bankers and things like that in the last few years. So, again, it's a lot of spending and even when they retire failing to, I suppose, tailor their spending to their new lifestyle where where there's no income coming in uh, in a lot of cases and they're still spending as if they're a Premier League player. I spoke to, there was one player I spoke to for the book who um, you know, he retired and decided to live off his nest egg for a while and a couple of years later got the idea gee, I better uh, look at my bank account and looked in it and there's 300 quid in it which he said is, is quite typical amongst retired players. 
It's quite it's remarkable. Fun. And, you know, I'm thinking uh, particularly uh, you mentioned about kind of outside influencers and a lot of these footballers get involved in these schemes and they kind of can't get out of and they come. it comes back to haunt them. I'd imagine say for example now and after a major tournament particularly when some footballers really stand out and there's opportunities there I guess that brings about more of those outside influencers agents advisors on what they should do who do they who they should play for and that we've seen it with the likes of Garrett Bale and all in his early career when you know he kind of shot to stardom there was talk of agents advising him in certain ways but I guess after a major tournament it, it heats up quite a lot for some players. Yeah, even I think I read today Marcus Rashford has, has signed his, a big, I think a million quid boot deal with, I'm not sure if it was Nike or Adidas, but you know, six months ago he, he wasn't even in the under-21 team for Man United. So it, it can be, I suppose, that quick the, the adjustment to sort of these huge figures. And a lot of, a lot of players said that you know, they're just not ready for it. And, you know, there's a lot of players as well who... who are signed at clubs at, at 16 or 17 and, and none of them think they're going to be the ones who are let go. So they all have the expectations of, of money. They're around the trappings of wealth, around the first team and even the reserves. And uh, there's a stat in the book from Expro who are a charity set up to um, assist down on the luck retired footballers that suggest that if you're signed at a, uh, an English club at the age of 16, you've only a 2% chance of, of still playing at 21. So that's the first wave of retirees there. And, yeah, and that's not a realisation um, there, Alan, about the, you know, the t- you know, about players, because we seem to see the younger players now are getting, they're getting their boots cleaned for them now at such a young age. And they're not living in the real world by the, t- by the time they get to their early 20s. Well, that's the problem with such a high attrition rate. With um, you know, they've they've got a sort of token education. Um, spoke to a few people like to, to get educated, maybe three days a week, the other two days. It's but but even then, at the thirteen or fourteen, they may have already got sponsorship deals, and they're they're not really interested in education. And you know, with that high rate uh, of people let go in their late teens or early twenties, um, they're typically the ones that end up in prison. I have a chapter in the book on. Um, footballers, how did they end up in prison? And there's, at the time of writing, there was about 150 um, former footballers in the British prison system. And I think it was 90% of those were under the age of 25. So they were lads who were maybe earning a grand or two in their late teens, were let go by the club, didn't get a contract elsewhere. And they sort of drifted back to their hometown or inner city and got in, involved in drugs. So in 90% of cases, it's drug-related and it's typically, typically courier and drugs from might be for example Newcastle to to Leicester or something like that and they'll get a grand or two grand for that and might do one or two a week so they're sort of maintaining the money that they had been earning before um but obviously that's not going to last as the figures in prison suggest I suppose yeah one of the chapters you also mentioned in the book is a crippling career and you know the sad stories of players that could have made it but just had a, a devastating injury I know Richie Sadlier was one player in particular who a lot of Irish fans and Irish management had a lot of hopes for I know when he was brought into the Irish squad under Mick McCarthy a lot of people were thinking wow he's the real deal but a crippling injury back then it didn't go too well and Lucky for Richie, he's got himself kind of back into football. He's doing media punditry, but there is a lot of footballers out there that struggle with that. 
Yeah, and it's something I didn't really think about before the book. Like, uh, premature, I, I sort of went into that chapter, like, thinking about players dealing with injuries after they retired, you know, in their 40s or 50s. But it's sort of um, this team came out amongst players, even if if they retired at 32 or 33 to injury, where they've regretted it. And it's taken some of them even 10 years to get over it, where they didn't know it was going to be their last game. And... and I think a couple of them mentioned that it haunted them for for a while and um you know they've likened it to a sort of a bereavement where you know or a sudden bereavement where the, the life they is all that they all that is all sorry that they've known for maybe 20 years is gone suddenly and it takes them a while to get to grips with that and yeah, Richie was one who at 23 or 24 as you mentioned he just broken into the Ireland squad and run up to the World Cup in Japan and South Korea and had been tipped for the top and then ended through injury he, he it took a while and tried to get back but it wasn't to be so he, he admitted himself it, t- it took a while to get over that both mentally I suppose and, and physically he, he he tried to come back he contract on the table with Sunderland but it wasn't to be but you know he said he still sort of you know for a while it was like the what ifs what if he hadn't got the injury etc and you know it, it took him quite a while to to get over that one thing I hear a lot of players talk about these days is when they are out injured and it's a maybe an injury that might take them a couple of months to recover from. There, there's, I remember David Myler speaking about it before and a little bit of he feels so depressed because he can't do the day-to-day stuff with the rest of the lads. You know, he has to stick with the gym or stay at home and players don't like that. But I guess that feeling also emerges when a player retires. And I watched your interview with uh, Richard Keyes Andy Gray on Be In Sports and the one thing when they were closing the show, Andy Gray turned around and he said he remembers so well, so clearly that day, the first day he woke up and he was no longer a professional footballer. I think that must hit a lot of players like a train uh, after they retire and wake up that day thinking what am I going to do? Yeah, and that's the main main cause for most of these problems where they, they've lived in the limelight for maybe 20 years. They've had this camaraderie in the dressing room. They've had similar goals to their peers and it ends overnight and it's, you, you know, they're not prepared. Like even the most level-headed players like Matt Holland and, and people like that I spoke to said they, they weren't prepared for it. Like the club have done everything for them for years, like even to giving them their passports at the airport and things like that. And then suddenly they're at home and, you know, they don't know how to, to, to cope. Like, uh, speaking to Niall Quinn recently, and he had a story um, where a player at Sunderland who had uh, been signed and he was just given an apartment or something and left to his own devices. But he he rang someone in the club to see see why he couldn't get his clothes clean. Yeah, and yeah. Some, someone called around to the house and he was putting them in the dishwasher. Yeah, and that's I, heard sort that, of- I heard that one. And that just shows how they're living, Alan, on a completely different planet. Yeah, and I spoke to ex-wives as well for the divorce chapter, and you know they they all said that you know the club do every for, everything for them, and then the wife does everything for them when they get home, and then they're in their mid thirties and they've they've no life skills and they can't really cope, and they, they try to I suppose recreate the buzz of football with you know alcohol or gambling or other addictions, which you know just exacerbates other problems, whether it's in the marriage or, or mentally or financially, and it's you know as I said earlier I broke it into different chapters of the book but as as it went along they were all totally interlinked I suppose yeah one of the one player in particular Alan that I guess has really 
raise the awareness um, of a need to look after players after they retire is the likes of Paul Gascoigne and players like that. You know, we've seen the troubles that he had and it's clearly obvious that there is, you know, nowadays, the, I suppose there's help out there, but it's only, it's a pity that it's only now when, you know, you see huge players like the likes of Gaza who, you know, slipped off the rails a good few times and, you know, I think he's back on his feet now, but it's just quite sad to see that there wasn't more help back then for them. Yeah, I spoke to a few players from sort of the start of the Premier League era and they said it was non-existent any help then, including um, the, the PFA's head of welfare, player welfare at the moment. He, uh, Mickey Bennett, he suffered an injury in the early 90s and um, he was just broken into the England under 20 or under 21 team and he, he found it difficult to cope and had no one to turn to. There was no nothing in the club, there was no real third party organizations to speak to. So he's in charge of that now at the PFA. So they've done a lot of work in recent years and there's other people like Expo I mentioned earlier who, who offer help to retired players. But a lot of it's reactive and again there's a lot of players that just don't want to know about it and there's there's a large section of players that sort of buried their head in the sand. A lot I spoke to and you know, others who mentioned teammates that, you know, don't want to think about retirement until it's it's looming or even until the day it happens and they've no further contracts. And, you know, it seems to be similar in a lot of sports. I spoke to a few people in the U.S. who studied U.S. sports sociology professors and they say that the NFL, NBA put on these roadshows for helping players to retire, but they're poorly attended because players just don't want to know and don't want to admit that it's going to happen to them when it's inevitable, really, you know? There's been a couple of cases, I think, Alan, with footballers that have just kind of fallen out of love with the game, not down to any, say, personal problems or, or that. They just realised one day that, oh, this isn't for me, and they realised from quite a young age, you know, there was a young Irish lad, Shane Supple, uh, at Ipswich, and he came back just to play a bit of GAA. Now, he was definitely uh, you know the, the the track was pretty good for him to go right to the top and another one I think you spoke to was David Bentley who was really hot at Spurs and getting in the England side as well and you know for players like that to retire young it's it's probably is it a rare thing you know to to get them in that situation where they discover at a young age that well they don't want to be a footballer anymore yeah it was it was an area that sort of intrigued me because I'd spoken to so many ex-players who who felt it difficult to cope with retiring, even if they'd had a full career and retired on their own terms. So I was fascinated into why the likes of David Bentley or Shane Supple and uh, there was another guy I spoke to as well, Espen Baradson, he was a keeper for Tottenham and Norway. Uh, he retired at 23 or 24 as well. I was just fascinated by it. But I think the doubts start in all three cases of the three guys I spoke to, the doubts started forming early on. Like David Bentley didn't retire until he was... 28 or 29 but he said to me that even from in his late teens he, he felt it wasn't for him and just there tended to be a sort of common thread between them and that they probably would have retired even earlier only for they didn't want to let down their parents and you know former coaches and maybe teachers and people like that so um they're def it's definitely very uncommon there there were sort of almost only the three i could i could find um mm because it was an area I was really interested in. So total outliers, yeah, but I could I could understand all the reasoning for it, I suppose, after I'd, I'd spoken to them. But um, it, it, they were the only ones really that 
dealt with the transition to retirement well, apart from ones who had another passion. Um, you know, I spoke to Pat Nevin, who, who's a pundit now. He used to be, a, as a player, he was the PFA chairman. And, you know, he, he told me early on that, you know, if, if football's all you have when you retire and that's it, that you're sort of stuffed if, if that's all you have, you have no other passion to fall back on. So I spoke to a few players who have gone on to become artists, musicians. Um, there's Lee Bowyer who runs a fishing lake in, in France now. So there's a chapter on that where it just displays that you need something else because there's only so many can go into the media and only so many yeah. can become managers and, managers and coaches. And even then, you could train for five years, get all your coaching badges, get one job last nine months, and 50% of first-time managers never get another job. So it's... It's even more precarious than playing, I suppose. So it's it's the holy grail, the media and, and management, but you know, it's only a tiny percentage are gonna break into it. So it, it just it, I just found that people players really need something else, something that will interest them if, if they don't get into coaching or management. There is a few players though that I've noticed that have never wanted to kind of leave football and as a player they've really got the most out of their careers the likes of David Beckham you know he played right till the end and Robbie Keane Ireland's Robbie Keane who's still going strong for the LA Galaxy that's another brand that just the player that just keeps on playing yeah and and I suppose most of them want to play as long as they can it, the guys was sort of common with, I spoke to a few lads that had to retire to your injury at maybe 29 or 30 and to a man, they all said that, oh, only before I got the injury, I would have played till I was 39 or 40, you know. So 35 seems to be the, the um, it was a really common age that cropped up and a milestone that if a player reached 35, he'd be happy with his lot. And, you know, which sort of was why there were problems with players who retired through injury before that. But I think most, yeah, were, were, were sort of happy to reach that age. And, you know, there's a few that mentioned that, you know, if you'd offered them at 18 that they'd play until they're 35, they'd have grabbed your hand off or whatever. So it, that seems to be the age that, you know, once they pass that, they're happy enough with their lot once they've been sort of injury free. But the mental health issues, there's stats there from FIFPRO that suggest that it's more common for retired footballers to suffer from mental health issues upon retirement if they've suffered um, serious injuries during their career. So that's an, another problem too and maybe unfulfilled potential as well because of that or, or maybe even unrelated to that yeah I know there's a particularly a lot of players that you see them and after a big injury they're, they're never quite the same they never quite hit the heights as they did uh, prior to the injury in terms of you know looking forward and I suppose the one thing a lot of people now think about footballers, oh, is he going to go into media or is it going to be coaching? It seems like it's one of those two these days, but I'm sure as you've explored in the book, there's plenty of other avenues players can take. Yeah, and I, I spoke to players about what, and broadcasters um, and people who train on the, the pro license course and all that and to what makes a good manager a pundit and it doesn't seem to, to be a, a typical answer and... Um, you know, even even players mentioned that they look around the dressing room and say, right, he, he'll he'll go into media, he'll go into management, and they get it totally wrong. So it's hard to sort of predict who who will make it. Um, but yeah, I think seventy percent or eighty percent of PFA um, members uh, want to remain in the game. And you know, I spoke to a few people in the PFA. So if you don't want to be a manager or coach, which 
know, it's pretty precarious. There's loads of other avenues they can go into, whether it's sports science or nutrition. There's a lot of new roles, I suppose, in stats and things like that in clubs. So you're not, you're not going to be earning what you earn as a player, but you'll have, a, I suppose, a steady income and you remain in the game. But, you know, most of them still want to remain in the game. But as I said earlier, stats just aren't, you know, ex-pro suggests that uh, there's up to 60,000 retired people who played football professionally in the UK and Ireland. So that would be lads who, from the age of 16 up to guys who in their 90s who played years ago. So, you know, it's enough people to fill Arsenal's Emirates Stadium or Celtic Park. So, you know, there's only 92 professional league clubs in the UK. And someone mentioned to me as well that, you know, a lot of the League 2 managers aren't even getting paid. It's just trying to get away back into the game. So it's mm. not a it's not a lucrative, really, career unless you're in the, I suppose, in the Premier League or even Championship. Yeah, certainly as well. It's a fascinating read indeed. Listen, Alan, the be- what's the best way for uh, listeners to get a hold of your book? Um, get an all good bookstores, Eason's or Amazon.co.uk. Fantastic stuff. Retired, what happens to footballers when the game's up? Alan Gernon, thanks a million for joining us on the Why Big Football Show and best of luck with the book. Thank you. Bye. Bye.